in um, in 2016. Here's a fun fact for you: the most expensive home for sale in the state of Ohio was a $10 million log cabin in Zanesfield. According to the listing, the 6,700-square-foot, four-bedroom, four-bathroom house on 345 acres has a a private 50-acre lake and two large floating docks, a pond, additionally, I guess, and a space for a private grass airplane landing strip. The most expensive house in the United States is for sale currently for $350 million. It's known as the Chartwell Estate. It's located in Bel Air in L.A., Los Angeles. It's actually the home of the original Clampets. The house was used for the exterior shots of the Beverly Hillbillies. The most expensive home in the world is known as Antilia. It's a 27-story high-rise It's located in Mumbai, India, which used to be called Bombay in India. It's valued at upwards of a billion dollars. It's owned and used as a a private residence by an Indian business tycoon and multi-billionaire who lives in this 400,000 square foot mansion and moved in in 2012 with his wife and three children. 400,000 square feet. Plenty of room. That home, Antilia, is named for an island in the Atlantic. It features a a multi-story garage with space for 168 cars. Perfect. It has a a ballroom, again. Three helipads, a garden, temple, guest suites, I would imagine. It's also described as having a health level, whatever that is. And it has a home theater that seats 50 people. Of course, Buckingham Palace in London, which is technically a private residence, although it's not owned by the Queen, it's owned by something called the the Crown Estates, but it's, it's not owned by the government like our White House is. Buckingham Palace is valued currently at over $3 billion. But what's the most expensive property in the world? Do you know? It's not Buckingham Palace, it's not the White House or the Kremlin or even the Vatican. The most expensive piece of real estate in the world is the Haram al-Sharif, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It's a site on which we believe Abraham nearly offered up Isaac as a sacrifice, except for the Lord's intervention, of course. It's a site on which Solomon and Ezra and Herod built the temple and then rebuilt the temple and then rebuilt it again. The Temple Mount is a sacred land to something like 16 million Jews, as well as, for other reasons, uh, 1.6 billion Muslims. It's a place of deep interest to 2.2 billion Christians living today. If it were for sale, there would probably be no problem getting a deposit together. Orthodox Jews pray three times a day at the Temple Mount, um, which was destroyed The temple itself was destroyed in 70 A.D. They pray that it will be rebuilt in their lifetime. They've been praying that for nearly 2,000 years. And they pray this because without the temple, they actually cannot truly worship. Without the temple, they cannot offer sacrifices and, and offerings. 
Without the temple, the, the priest cannot observe, for example, the Day of Atonement to pay for the sins of the Jewish people with a blood sacrifice. Turn to John chapter 4. As we pick up the story, we're in the, we're in the midst of taking an in-depth look at Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman, the, the woman at the well. And, and we have seen as we have worked our way through this that, that not only does Jesus treat this woman with dignity and compassion, which he does, not only does he proclaim that, that he is the source of true living water leading to eternal life, not only was this conversation that they have something that he was compelled by his mission from God to do. He had to pass through Samaria. But also, as we will see more fully today, Jesus focuses her attention and our attention in worship, not on the Temple Mount, but on Jesus Christ himself. And so this morning, I want to read just verses 21 through 26. So John chapter 4, verses 21 to 26 says this. And we really are just going to focus on 23 and 24. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's just pray again. Lord, I pray that we would be true worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. Speak to us today through your word, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. These few verses, um, right here in the midst of this story of the woman at the well, these few verses give us some of the most important statements I believe ever made about the, the nature of worship. In John's detailed account of Jesus' meeting this woman here at the well, after he uncovers her hidden sin and shame that he's done just moments before he says these words. She asks him about a long-standing dispute concerning worship between Jews and Samaritans. And, and this is of great importance to both of them. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. They were on Mount Gerizim. But you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus responds... What we need to see is an essential key in our worship. Maybe the most important aspect of our worship. He says, true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. There have been, I think you know this, there have been worship wars throughout history. In my generation, in our generation, churches have fought over the idea of contemporary versus traditional worship. I think that's a, a bad argument that's led to too many internal church splits. And by that, I mean having a traditional service and also a contemporary service. I think that's a terrible idea. You end up having two churches under one roof. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
the Westminster Directory of Public Worship. You probably have a copy. It was composed by the same group of church leaders who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms. This group was appointed by British Parliament, actually, to restructure the Church of England, and they met 1,163 times between the years 1643 and 1649. So in something like six years, they met 1,163 times to help restructure the Church of England. This document, Directory of Public Worship, was the first in the, in the Protestant world to put on paper guidelines for what has come to be known as the regulative principle of worship, which simply states that, that the corporate gathered church worship of God is to be founded upon specific directions from Scripture. Or as John Calvin had put it, God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by His Word. So, for example, let me read to you the opening of the Directory of Public Worship. It says this. When the congregation is to meet for public worship, the people, having uh, before prepared their hearts thereunto, ought to all come and join therein, not absenting themselves from the public ordinance through negligence or upon pretense of private meetings. I have other things to do. Let all enter the assembly, not irreverently, but in a grave and seemly manner, taking their seats or places without adoration or bowing themselves toward one place or another. And this is written in response to Roman Catholic worship at the time where they would come in and bow. He said, don't do that. It goes on and says, the congregation being assembled, the minister, after solemn calling on them to the worshiping of the great name of God, is to begin with prayer. Then he says, or it says this, the public worship being begun, the people are wholly to attend upon it, forbearing to read anything except what the minister is reading or citing, and abstaining much more from all private whisperings, conferences, salutations, or doing reverence to any person present or coming in as also from gazing, sleeping, or other indecent behavior, which may disturb the minister or people or hinder themselves or others in the service of God. Now, before we roll our eyes at that, and and it is understandable to chuckle and roll our eyes, before we whisper about it, think about what worship in heaven will be like. Just think about that. What will worship in heaven be like? Will we be gazing off into space or falling asleep when we're in the very presence of God the Father and the Lamb who was slain? I understand that the flesh is weak. I understand that. But Jesus said true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And that statement governs our worship. True worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now remember the context of him making this statement. Jesus has informed this Samaritan woman that the Jews and not the Samaritans had been appointed by God to this unique privilege and and really unique responsibility of of passing on the oracles of God. Paul will say that explicitly in Romans chapter 3, verse 2. And of course, the, the entire Old Testament bears that out. It is through the Jews that we have God's Word. But now Jesus says things are changing. 
He says, the hour is coming. A new age is dawning. The age to which the scriptures of the Jews point. That is, the the 39 books of the Old Testament. They all point to this hour that is coming. And again, the central marker, the, the central point in all of history is the cross. And so no longer will the the place be the important aspect of worship. The most valuable piece of real estate in the world loses value because the hour is coming and is now here, Jesus says. It is right here standing in front of this woman offering her living water. See, the hour is specifically his death, resurrection, and exaltation, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. He will say himself in his, at the very opening of his prayer in John 17, just before he's arrested, just before he's tried, just before he is executed, he will say the hour has come. But this period of true worship is already present in the, in the person and ministry of Jesus. He says in verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here. Here he is, sitting beside this woman at the well. True worship can only take place in and through Jesus. Do you know why? Do you know why that true worship can only take place in and through Jesus Christ? It's because he said back in chapter 2, in verses 19 to 21, he said that he was the true temple. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body, John clarifies for us. But there's more. The preacher of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is also the true high priest. Hebrews 4.14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. See, our great high priest didn't just go into the Holy of Holies. He ascended to the Holy of Holies. And then again, as we're learning, we talked about this in Sunday school in the last hour, in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, in, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But not only is Jesus the true high priest, he is also the the more spotless, perfect sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 9, Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then uh, through the greater and more perfect tent, uh, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, 
purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And as a result of his perfect sacrifice, the very next verse in Hebrews says this, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, under the, under the old law. Christ has saved us from our condemnation due to our breaking of God's law. Christ has saved us from that. Later, Jesus will tell us in John 11, verse 25, that he's also the resurrection and the life. As a result of all of this, all who believe in Him, all who put their their trust in these truths live as true worshipers. Now look at these two verses again, verses 23 and 24 of John 4. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth said a moment ago that this statement, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, that it might be the most important aspect to our worship, that this statement might be the most important statement ever made about the, about the nature of worship. So we need to understand what Jesus means by true worshipers. And so first of all, it doesn't mean that those who had worshipped God before this time, that those who had worshipped God in the Old Testament are somehow false worshipers. In fact, both true and and false worshipers can be found both in the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament and also in the church from the time of Acts all the way to now. Instead, what Jesus means by this is that now with Christ, this ancient conflict between the, the Temple Mount and Mount Gerizim, it's now obsolete. This conflict that the Jews and the Samaritans have over where their temple should be, where their worship should take place, it's That's gone. See, in Christ, true worshipers are no longer connected to a special temple, a special shrine, but they worship in spirit and in truth. And more on that in just a minute. True worshipers. Based on what we have, have read so far in John, Jesus is saying that true worshipers are not identified by either their their place of worship or by their ethnicity, whether that is Jew, Samaritan, or even Gentile. In fact, true worshipers are a a new race, a new creation, a new people, a people who have been born again as a child of God. As a result, true worshipers have a, a true father. You catch that back in verse 12? Back in verse 12, this Samaritan woman calls Jacob our father. She says, our father Jacob. But Jesus says here in verse 23, he says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him. See, Jesus is saying that true worshipers, when when they speak of of a father, They're not speaking of ancestry. They're talking about a a heavenly father, the one who gave them life, who gave them eternal life. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Or, or 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are, John says. Or of course, John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those whom the Father loved, he saved. And our only proper response is, is true worship. And I want to show you a kind of a minor detail that I believe shows us the, the stark contrast between, really in Jesus' words here. Look at the word what in verse 22. He, he says it twice. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now the word what is a, it's a neutral word. It can mean anything. And clearly it's used here, in, it's used in place of the, of the object of both the Samaritans' worship and the Jews' worship. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. But Jesus changes the object of their worship from a what to the Father. This is intentional and it is specific. See, worship is only true when it is directed at the Father. But let me tell you something. So much of our worship wars today stem from the fact that our worship is not, it's not directed at the Father. It's directed at someone who might potentially walk in the door and feel more comfortable if we were different, more contemporary or more traditional or whatever. If we were different, we don't want to offend someone for singing one style or another style, and it, it seems to always be about the music. But that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says is that worship is only true when it is directed at the Father. And as the Father becomes more and more central in our worship, Christ becomes more and more central in our worship. And this is really the unity of the Trinity, even though we haven't mentioned the Spirit just yet. Each person of the Godhead is distinct and worthy of worship, yet for different reasons, because each have their different roles. But each member, the Father, Son, and Spirit, are worthy of worship. But here, in this passage, Jesus is stressing the worship of the Father. And, and he adds this phrase, in spirit and truth. So, so not only does his statement to this simple Samaritan woman have significance regarding the, the hour of worship, focusing on the cross, not the time, but the hour that has come, the cross, but it also addresses what we would call a, really, this is the theology of Christian worship. See, this statement, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, has implications for every aspect of Christian worship. Now, the Bible presents worship as, as both an activity and a way of life, right? And we can generally agree that, that as an activity, there's really three aspects to worship. Um, first is public worship, gathered with church gathering together. And this is the people of God assembling 
for the express purpose of, of ascribing to the Lord the glory due His name, of singing His praises, of offering up prayers together, of, of reading and preaching God's Word together, of enjoying the joy of His promised special presence with His own people. This is when we gather every Lord's Day. This is a command of Scripture. The second activity is family worship. This, according to Deuteronomy chapter 6, is, is to be led by fathers or the head of the household. It's a threefold goal of establishing God-centered homes. Deuteronomy 6 tells us this, of promoting and encouraging worship as a, as a way of life for each member of the family, of passing on the faith, and also to prepare our hearts for gathered public worship. It is, it is Joshua 24, verse 15, lived out. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what public uh, family worship looks like. Passing on the faith, teaching the commands of Scripture. And then the third worship activity that we see in Scripture really is private worship. We see it taught and modeled in Scripture by men like David. Many of the Psalms are his private worship that he put pen to paper. We see it in Daniel when he throws open the windows in his room and gets down on his knees and prays to God. We see it in Peter who goes off to pray and of course in Jesus who frequently would go off by himself to pray. And I, and I just want to be super clear. Neither private worship nor family worship in Scripture never, in fact never ever, trumps public or church worship. Never. In fact, Hebrews 10.25 commands us to not neglect meeting together. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. And it's not from me, by the way, it's from Scripture. But of course, all of these activities, each of these activities of worship, point us really toward an all-of-life worship. Worship as a way of life, as, as Paul will tell the Corinthians, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All of life is to be worship, all to the glory of God. But what does Jesus mean here by worshiping in spirit and truth? Well, <clears throat> for starters, the, the grammar of the statement, spirit and truth, it, it's written in such a way that, that the two things cannot be separated. They must go together. So, so you cannot worship in spirit but, but sing false songs sing songs that are incorrect and say wrong things about God, right? And you can't say, well, God knows my heart, while at the same time filling our heads with books or teachings that go against the clear teaching of Scripture, okay? But let's look at the clues in this passage. In verse 24, Jesus makes the statement, God is spirit. So there's a connection here between spirit and truth, and, and God is spirit. Now, this is not specifically referring to the Holy Spirit here. Remember the context. Should we worship here, or should we worship there? Instead, Jesus is reminding her, really, of God's, what we would call His incommunicable attributes, those things that are only true of God. He's invisible. He's divine and not human. He's life-giving, and He is unknowable to humans except to the extent that He has chosen to reveal Himself. This is about God's omniscience. 
His all-knowingness. This is about God's omnipresence, His everywhereness. Yet God has chosen to reveal Himself. He has created. And we see, as Romans chapter 1 tells us, evidence of God's character just by looking at a sunrise, just by looking at a snowstorm, at a leaves falling off a tree. I love walking to church in the morning. I don't do it at sunrise often. Usually it's later than that. But I love walking to church in the morning when the sun is coming up over there or at night and it's going down over there and it's beautiful. Those things remind us of who God is. Creator, sustainer. He is beautiful. He cares. He has chosen to reveal himself in that he has created, but he didn't stop there. He has uttered his word. He has given us the scriptures to tell us about himself. And not only has he given us the scriptures, the word became flesh. and He dwelt among men. He may be known. And he baptizes, he immerses his people into Christ and he seals them with the promised Holy Spirit. For unless they are born from above, unless his people are born from above, born in the Spirit, they cannot see the kingdom of God, Jesus says, and they cannot therefore worship him truly. The one who is the truth, John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The one who is the truth, baptizes, immerses his own into the Spirit. So worship must be essentially God-centered. And it's made possible by the, by the gift of the Holy Spirit and through the personal knowledge and conformity to the one who is the truth. And so let me put it like this. True worshipers worship in spirit, that is in, in the Holy Spirit-empowered, spiritual, supernatural, newly reborn, eternal life. And true worshipers worship on the basis of God's incarnate truth, in the flesh, truth, Jesus himself. And so these things, spirit and truth, they're indivisible. You cannot separate them. So let's put it all together. I like this statement. Pay very close attention to this. The one commentary, I read it a few times says this, true worship is paternal in focus. Paternal, God the Father. It is personal in origin, the Son who gave himself for us. And it is pneumatic in nature. The spirit, pneuma, spirit, wind. Pneumatic tools, wind. That's what that means. It means spirit. It is pneumatic in nature. The Christian life is Trinitarian by nature. It's focused on the Godhead. It's not focused on the location. We don't have to make pilgrimages to Jerusalem. You can go. You can even worship there. I would, love, I would love to do that. But we can worship God right here because true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. And just a brief point about truth here, particularly when it comes to our public worship. I should not preach things that are not true. Right? I should not preach things that are untrue. Nobody should preach things that are untrue. We should not allow false teachings to be proclaimed from this pulpit. Okay? Yet so much of 
the Christian books out there, not all, there are some great Christian books, but so many of them are false teachings. They say false, wrong things, and we use them in our private worship, our private devotions. And if you're using books like Jesus Calling, you should not be. It is leading you astray because it is claiming to be the words from God, and it is not words from God. It's, it's the very definition of heresy. But true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. One more <laughs> while I'm on a roll. I'm a, I'm a music aficionado, and I don't know if that's the right word. I always think of cigar aficionado. I'm not a cigar aficionado, but I am a music lover, liker, whatever. I listen to all different kinds of music. You would be surprised. Even my kids are surprised sometimes. But I want to tell you that the, the biggest worship bands out there right now, there are some good ones. There are some very good ones. But many of the biggest ones out there right now are mixing in lies with partial truths. But we often excuse it by saying, well, it's Christian, so it must be okay. But the problem is that so many, so many pop Christian songs have an incredibly low view of Scripture, low view of God, and they become all about feelings and not about truth. But true worshipers worship not in feelings, but in spirit and truth. But before you think I'm just against contemporary worship, I want to I assure you that I think the same thing about many hymns as well. And before you think, oh, it's just a song, who cares? I would ask you to consider if you would think that way about any other aspect of worship. It's just the Lord's Supper, who cares? It's just the body and blood of Christ, who cares? And all I'm saying is be very careful because true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. John Piper has said, a congregation learns its theology by the songs they sing, not just the preaching they hear. And I believe that. As someone who's listened to contemporary Christian music since the 80s, since Michael W. Smith II came out, I believe that. This really hasn't been a problem here, so don't get me wrong. It's just in my heart because I've seen so many people be carried off by myths and tossed around by every wind and wave of doctrine, and it started often with the songs that they sing. True worshipers worship in spirit and in truth, and the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. And Jesus said the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. As we finish this morning, I want to give you seven gospel notes. I don't want to leave you on what I don't like. <laughs> I want to give you seven gospel notes. In other words, seven things to take away from this. It'll be fairly quick, and I, I want you to consider these things. And I just want to point out they are not uh, original to me. I got them from Juan Sanchez. Juan Sanchez is the high, a pastor of High Point Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. Not in High Point over there, Austin, Texas. And I, and I think they're excellent, and they're worthy of your consideration. So seven things. The first is this. This kind of summarizes all that we have talked about. True worship is God-centered. True worship is God-centered. We were created to worship. We are commanded to worship God alone in the ways that He has outlined in Scripture. Therefore, as we, as we prepare our hearts for worship, we need to remember that worship is about God and not about us. 
It is not about me, certainly. True worship is God-centered. Second, true worship is Christ-focused. It is focused on Jesus Christ. Jesus is the image of God, the creator, the sustainer, the reconciler of creation. He is the head of the church, the Bible tells us. It pleased God to reveal himself, to show us himself through the Son, and to reconcile us to himself through Jesus' death. And so, right along with the disciples, we worship Jesus. Jesus is the focus of worship because he's the focus of the Father's work. True worship is Christ-focused. Third, true worship is Spirit-empowered. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Bible makes it clear um, that we are born into this world as children of wrath and dead to God, Ephesians 2. One, two, and three. But by grace through faith, the rest of that passage, Ephesians 2, 4 through 10, by grace through faith, we are made alive to God and dead to sin. Only those who have been made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit can truly worship God. These are the, the true worshipers that God seeks, those who have been made alive. True worship is spirit-empowered. Four, true worship is word-based. It is Bible-based. God's word, the Bible, the scriptures, is the basis of everything that we do in worship. From the announcements, to the welcome, to the singing, to praying, to the preaching, to the offerings, everything that we do as an act of worship is based on God's word because God works through and by his word he created by his word he sustains his creation by the word of his power hebrews 1 3 tells us he came into this world as the word the word became flesh he saves us by the power of his word preaching is the primary for form of the word in our worship it's the primary it is the the focus because this is the model that Jesus and his disciples left us. We saw that as we walked through Acts. They went out preaching God's word. And because we were commanded to preach the word until Christ returns. Second Timothy. Number five, true worship engages both mind and heart. This isn't just a lecture, Right? True worship gets into our minds and also our hearts. It requires that we engage God with our minds as we study His Word, as we seek to grow in the knowledge and understanding of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And at the same time, it requires that we engage with God, with our hearts, as the, as the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our lives, as it works through us and, and causes us to praise God, causes us to, to glorify in Him. This means that our worship is, is going to be passionate. We're going to sing. We're going to pray. It, it will be spirit-filled because it's based on the truth of God's Word, based on the truth of who He is and what He has done. True worship engages both our minds and our hearts. And true worship is, number six, it is edifying is the word. True worship is edifying. It builds up. 
and though it is about God and not about us, true worship will build up believers in both mind and heart until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, Ephesians chapter 4 tells us. In other words, though worship is all about God, it will benefit us, it will cause us to grow in our love for Him and for one another. Worship is both Godward, it is both directed directly at God, but it also encourages and spurs one another on as we sing together. Some of the songs that we sing, for example, basically say, hey you, remember God's goodness. Hey, hey you, remember God's amazing grace. And when we've been there 10,000 years, true worship is edifying. It builds up the church and then true worship Number seven is it's more than just today. It's more than just Sunday. And so as believers in Jesus Christ, we are commanded to not neglect gathering together. Hebrews 10, 25. But true worship is in every day, all of life matter. We're to give our entire lives over to God as living and holy sacrifices, Romans 12 tells us. That means that we worship God in how we live Monday Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and even on Saturday. We worship God in how we live and how we work, how we play, every single day of our lives. True worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And let me just finish by saying this. May it always be said of Logansville Church that we are true worshipers who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And let me say this, I cannot tell you how much I love worshiping with this church. As we sing God's praises, as we pray together, as we read God's word, as we weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. May it always be said that we are true worshipers who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Pray with me. That is my prayer for our church, Lord, for us. That the pastors of this church, those who will proclaim the word, would proclaim the truth. That the songs that we sing, the prayers that we offer up, the, the things that we believe, Lord, that we learn about you, that our offerings would be done in spirit and in truth, that our service for one another would be done in spirit and in truth, that our service for the church as we, as we care for one another, as we take care of business for one another, that it would be done in spirit and in truth as we worship. That we would be true worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. That we would worship our Father who first loved us and gave us His Son. Lord, I can't help but be reminded of Paul's words in, to the Ephesians that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Lord, in him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory for this reason because i have heard of the of the faith of this church and the lord jesus christ and their love toward all the saints i do not cease to give thanks for them remembering them in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us the spirit of wisdom, and revelation, and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That truth, Lord, we cling to. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.